<laughs> no, I'm just kidding. How many love the law of God? How many agree that the law of God is good? Perfect. How many believe that the law of God needs to be kept? I want to ask the next obvious question. If we were to summarize all the law and the prophets into a couple of concise statements, what would those statements be? That was wonderful. What's your name? Dude. Brother Dude. Brother Dude? Yeah. Brother Dude? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, dude. Yeah. That's cool. You, you fit right in, huh? God created you for a moment just like this. That's tremendous. Dude said... That's great. That is, I couldn't, have, I couldn't have planned that any better. <laughs> you got to be sitting up here in front. This is great. If we're to summarize all the law and the prophets into two statements, dude said, you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Does God bend on that a little bit? Does he say, well, you know, I know it's hard. I know you guys can't quite do it. So I'll, I'll kind of lower the standard a little bit. Does he do that for us? He doesn't? He doesn't lower the standard? You mean he holds it right up there? Yes. He does? Is that fair? You know why it's fair? It's his law. <laughs> he can do with it as he pleases, isn't that true? It's an expression of his very nature and character. By definition, he cannot lower the standard because that makes him less than God. Less than perfect, absolutely perfect. Do we have a dilemma then? If God demands absolute perfection and keeping his law, do we then have a dilemma? Huh? Yeah, we don't keep his law, do we? He demands that we do. He says, obey me. We talked about this a little bit last week, and uh, we said that there's something that he provides that makes all the difference. And that something is called grace. And I want to talk to you a little bit about tonight about what grace does. What it does. Now when we think about the law, does the law really, does the law really um, make us better? Huh? I mean, you keep the law, don't you get better? No, because you can't keep it. And when you do keep it, do you keep it perfectly? No, no. Therefore, you can't get better keeping the law. So what the law really does, rather than making me better, God's law really slays me. It kills me. It destroys any illusion that I might have about my own abilities, about who I am. It lays me low, doesn't it? Sure. Because when you begin to take God's law seriously, and in taking it seriously, you seek then to obey it with all your heart and strength, and you begin to discover, and you don't have to wait too long... You can't do this. I can't do this. 
We talked a little bit about last week about the frustration that develops from that. So the effect of the law of God on my life is not to make me better. The effect of the law of God on my life is that it produces death. It must produce death. For if it doesn't, I can't be, what? Born again. I've got to experience that death through His law to be born again. If you look in your notes, I've given you some scriptures, and Paul really points out to this reality. He says in verse 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 20 of Romans, he said, the law was added so that trespass might not decrease, increase. Don't we, in our society, add laws to hopefully suppress trespass? When we see a problem, when we see some injustice, we say, there ought to be a law. Right? And we pass another law. Do you know that our nation has more laws than any other nation in the world? And yet we are the most violent society on the face of the earth? Are laws making us better? Not at all. Not at all. The law was added so the trespass might increase. How many remember the second part of that verse? Where sin increased, grace increased more. In Romans chapter 7, verse 5, Paul says, this is really really significant, he says, sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death, not life. He said, we have these sinful passions and they're dormant, they're just under the surface. You won't know that they're there until you get the law coming and probing them and sticking them. Picture in your mind's eye, you're at the zoo, you know, and you've got this little kid with you. And you're behind the, uh, behind the tents where all the cages are. You know where the animals, they, they keep the animals in the cages? And there's this big lion in this big cage, sleeping. And you're caught up in a conversation with somebody, this little kid that you're with, that you brought, finds a stick. And he goes over and stands next to this cage with a lion in it. And he sees this big, big lion laying there very quietly sleeping. And he sticks that stick inside the cage. He probes the lion. What do you expect the lion's going to do? <laughs> He's going to wake up. See, that's the effect that the law has on sin in us. We wouldn't know that we were sinners. We wouldn't know how bad we were as sinners if we didn't have the law. That's why in Psalm 19, David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, convicting the soul. You look into the law, you look intently into the law of God. I mean intently, you study the law of God and you begin to see, Oh my! I'm not what I thought I was. I have a problem. And it is a rather significant problem. So significant that I have no hope, no hope whatsoever of curing my problem. i got to have help from the outside. In chapter 7, verse 10 of Romans, he says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Paul's describing his perspective as a Jewish Pharisee looking on the law that this was supposed to bring life. Remember, God said, if you obey me, I'll what? Bless you. So keeping the law was a means of blessing. Paul refers to himself in the third chapter of Philippians as being a righteous Jew among every other Jew. And he says, regarding the law, he says, I was faultless. Speaking of his credentials earlier on. And yet he began to understand and see the very law that he thought was meant to bring life actually brought death. It slew him. It laid him low. He had nothing to brag about. And he reflects that in other statements when he says, if I have anything to boast, I'll boast in my weakness. If I must boast, I'll boast in my weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he writes there, 
that the letter kills. The law kills. Now, with all of this said, we must have an appreciation for the law of God, don't we? Because if we don't have an appreciation for the law of God, if we don't value God's law and take God's law seriously, we will not value and take seriously His grace. And so again, the standard is up here. It's perfection. And as we strive to it, we find that we cannot keep His law. And in fact, the more we look at it, the the more intent we are in trying, the more devastated we become. That is a good thing. How many know that? That is a good thing to be laid low by the law of God. We need, we need that. The law of God produces death. Effectively. Legalism. An attitude towards the law of God which says, I can justify myself based on my performance. Or, I will be acceptable to God as long as I am performing, as long as I am jumping through the hoops, as long as I am doing what I'm supposed to do. As long as I I do what I should do or ought to do. And many, many, many Christians still live with this mentality. If you sat down and spoke logically, had a logical conversation, talked about law and grace, legalism and so forth, a person would say, yes, I understand, that makes sense. Yes, grace, I love God's grace. But they live their lives as legalists, still performing and still under a heap of guilt, still wearing a mask, still gossiping, still backbiting, still defending themselves because they have not yet known God's grace in their life. There's any one of us that's free of that? No. None of us. I mean, in my life daily, I must confront the reality of how easy it is to slip back into that performance mode. To to please people, to smile at the right time and to say the right things for fear of what someone will think and or say. Where in God's grace affects me in a totally different way than this performance orientation. What effect does God's grace have on me? We know that God's law, the effect of God's law, is to slay me. What then is the effect of God's grace? Brings life. Brings life. Do you remember the performance gap we talked about last week? Here's God's standard. Here's where most of us are. And there's this massive gap, this gulf between what he demands and where we are. We try to close that gap on our own efforts, and you cannot do it. The more we try to do it, the more devastated we become, the more hopeless it looks, the more frustrated we are. In Luke chapter 19, verse 8, That's a passage where Jesus has called Zacchaeus, remember, out of the tree and said, I'm going to stay at your house today and we're going to have lunch and have a nice time and so forth. And I want you to see the effect in Zacchaeus' life by his own testimony of Jesus' grace or graciousness to him in this verse. You see a man who is changed, a man who is turned around. He says, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. (laughs) That's pretty astounding, wouldn't you say? Half my possessions to the poor? And just that morning, that very morning, that very morning, Zacchaeus was a hated tax collector. Selfish, into business for himself, making as much money as he could, amassing a great fortune as he could, cheating who he could, and he's changed just like that. You see the effect of God's grace on a life? 
changes us. It transforms us. It brings life. God's grace. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says, Sin shall not be your master. Why? Because you're not under law, but you're under grace. Sin has been our master. It has ruled our life. But no longer. Because now we're under grace. We're not under the law principle. We're not under the principle of having to keep all the rules, to justify ourselves, to be acceptable to God. We're under His grace. And I love Romans 8.1. For whoever is in Christ, there is no condemnation. The obvious implication is there was condemnation before. And the condemnation came, why? From the law. The law said, you must keep me or you are condemnable. And now that I'm in Christ, who has kept the law for me, who's done everything, he got the A for me. Isn't that nice? Now in Christ, there is no condemnation. Beloved, grace transforms. That's what it does. It transforms. It changes people. Grace changes people. And we know something of that just within the context of our own interpersonal relationship, how grace has an effect. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, the, the gospel of God, the good news of God, the grace of God is powerful to save, powerful to transform. And we know that in our own, at our own level. When we are involved in relationships where people exhibit genuine grace, acceptance, love, and understand there's a difference between grace and permissiveness. There's a difference between grace and license. Grace doesn't say, well, you can go do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. There is discipline in the context of grace, is there not? So grace, grace transforms. It brings life. It saves. It heals. It gives new life. It changes everything about a person. Changes the person's motivations and changes their life. Starts from the inside and works out. Grace is not magic. This is just the very nature of grace. This is the very nature of God's creation called grace. And how grace changes every single one of us. Some would say, well, listen, if God's grace can change me, why do I see so little change? Why do I see so little change? Well, I think there's something that we have to do in order for God's grace, in fact, to change us. What do you think that thing is that we must do so that God's grace can change us? Huh? Obey. Obey what? Obey Jesus, obey his law. If I obey his law, does that mean his grace is going to change me? What must I do? What part do I play if, in fact, God's grace is to change me? Believe, right? i got to believe. If, if you were a thirsty person, dying of thirst... And I had a huge, big pool of water here for you. But you didn't believe that the water was safe to drink. And I said, it is, it is, it is. You said, no, no, I don't really, I don't believe it, I don't trust. Are you going to remain a thirsty person? I mean, you can have all the water right here. It's right in front of you. But if you don't believe that it'll do the job. Quench your thirst. You'll remain a thirsty person. So I've got to believe. Now here's, this is key. Because this brings it right down to where we're at. We can theorize all we want. And very often in church, people theorize. But when it comes down to the day-to-day -day living, 
This is where we must trust in God's grace. You remember what God said to Paul? My grace is sufficient. Now, did he say that to Paul in the midst of an idyllic, pleasant situation? No, he said that to Paul in the midst of a very agonizing, threatening, devastating condition that Paul was in the midst of, didn't he? So when I'm feeling afraid, like I want to run and hide, like I want to quit, like I want to give up, when I'm feeling intimidated, overwhelmed, inadequate, insecure, and all the other ins that there are that we feel. I must believe. I must believe. I must believe. You say, but sometimes it's just, I can't stand it anymore. I can't take another step. He won't give you any more than you can bear. He won't give you any more than you can bear. When I feel inadequate, I believe. When I feel afraid, I believe. When I fail, I believe. When I'm frustrated, And I don't see any resolution. I don't see any answer. I don't see any way out. I believe. I believe. That's why the scriptures make so much of faith. They say, believe and be saved. That doesn't mean only just salvation. Believe and be saved, be rescued. Be buoyed up, be strengthened, be changed in the midst of whatever circumstance or situation we're in. My grace is sufficient. That's what he says to us. That's what he says to us. And sometimes, how many of you feel like you just absolutely pressed to the wall, like there's just no place else you can go, and you, everything's coming down, and it's all over, and no hope, and, and the temptation is to quit. To run, to hide, to bail, to abdicate. I believe. In the midst of life's frustrations and failures, I believe. I believe. Over and over and over, we are challenged to the same demand, believe. Whosoever believes, the Bible says. To everyone that believes. You say, well, I believe, I believe. But it doesn't seem to make any difference. Maybe you need to examine who and what you believe. See, there's lots and lots of people, certainly certainly, and obviously outside the church, who need to improve their understanding, their concept, their knowledge of God. Would you agree? Because there are lots of people, and still some in the church, who view God. And, and I've heard this so many times from people who've come from uh, terrible backgrounds, life backgrounds, and uh, horrible things, and they can't relate to God. They, they can't do this. But God says, you can trust me. He says, you can trust me. And he gives us example after example after example after example. Beloved, I am here to tell you, this is all you need. And the issue is to read his book and to say, wow. Well, you were there. You were there. You were there. You were there. And you did that. You did that. And to say, you know, you're not some old mean curmudgeon. You're not some old celestial legalist. 
you are gracious. And you always come to the aid of your people. You always sustain your people. Those who are weak, those who have no hope, you're always there. I read it page after page after page after page. He says, trust in me. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in me. Now, lest somebody misinterpret, misunderstand, doesn't mean that you've got to get mystical. And you've got to isolate yourself. And you've got to hear voices. So God is speaking to me. <laughs> got to be real careful. Trust in me doesn't mean that you isolate yourself. It means that you trust in God and that which he has provided so that his grace can flow to you. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So some people need to improve their concept of God. That they might be able to receive from him, receive his grace. For if you just view God as some old legalist in the sky, someone you've got to jump through the hoops for, someone you've got to perform for, someone you've got to keep all the do's and don'ts, you'll never know his grace, and you'll never know the healing and transformation that can come as a result of knowing the God of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And secondly, I've got to continue to reaffirm my trust in his grace. Continue to reaffirm it, reaffirm it. What's our exercise first thing in the morning? Do you remember that? Mike, what's that exercise we do in the morning now? Do you remember? <laughs> not the one on her face, no, not the one in the super spiritual position. The other one. First thing you get up in the morning, run to the bathroom. Look in the mirror, admire God's creation. What do you say? That's right. I'm a beautiful child of God, and he loves me. He cherishes me. He cares for me. His grace sustains me. See, beloved, we have to have a, a healthy understanding of who he is, and reaffirm to ourselves every single day His grace. God is gracious. God is gracious. And He's gracious to me. I failed miserably today, but He is still gracious to me. He doesn't withdraw from me. He doesn't pull away from me. He doesn't scowl at me when I failed. He still smiles at me. He still smiles at me. Where you and I will fail with each other, God does not fail. He's gracious. So we need to continually reaffirm our trust in His grace. That His grace is there. That water is good. You can drink of it. And it will quench your thirst. God wants to enable us to do by His grace what you and I cannot do for ourselves, and that is to love him, really love him with our whole heart, and love our neighbor as ourselves. We fail miserably at that, do we not? Sure. Absolutely. And when we fail, we, we heap guilt on ourselves, or we go into to this thing called denial, we pretend like, well, we're really okay when we're not okay. The issue is to be able to tell ourselves the truth. The truth is, I'm not okay. I need help. But God, you're there to help. You're there to help. You don't push me away. You may discipline me. You may speak straight to me. <laughs> I may not always want to hear it. But the truth is, your grace is always there. You don't push me away. His purpose really is to make us like himself, isn't it? He does that by his grace. The very heart, this is the very heart of God's Spirit's work, is to make us like Him. The very heart of His work is to do this work of transformation. God the Father, because He is gracious, loves us while we are still sinners. Values us while we are still sinners. 
The Son, by His life, by His teachings, and by His death, personally demonstrates, out where we can see it, visible, tangible form, what that gracious love means. And the Holy Spirit takes the truth of God revealed in Christ through those miracles, through those teachings, through His life, through His death. And the Holy Spirit applies it to our very life so that we can understand it, so that we can believe it, and be changed by it, be transformed. That's the work of God's Spirit, is to bring about this transformation in our life. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, most of you are aware of that passage, describes the qualities of this new life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Holy Spirit. These are, these are the qualities that describe the life that is transformed or is being transformed. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the qualities that exhibit the transformed life. How many of y'all possess those qualities perfectly? None of us do. None of us do. And remember, that's fruit. And it's fruit of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come as a result of us agonizingly working hard, straining with great efforts to produce it. It's like a peach tree. You ever seen a peach tree grow fruit? Give off peaches. I have a peach tree in my backyard. It's coming out this year. I'm laying an axe at the root. That peach tree has given me one peach in ten years. It's coming out. But in a peach tree that does give fruit... If you, if you have fruit trees, if you have access to fruit trees, do this. Go out, go out one night and, and just sit by the peach tree or the fruit tree and listen to it. <laughs> listen to it as it groans and strains trying to generate fruit. <laughs> listen to it go, <laughs> Does it do that? No! No, a fruit tree doesn't grow. It just happens. All of a sudden, before you know it, fruit is there. That's a beautiful example. And I think that's obviously why Paul uses that term, fruit of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the wonder of God's grace. And when that grace enters in and touches our life, when we believe that new life simply appears. It just appears, and it starts growing effortlessly, naturally, free and sweet. Isn't that beautiful? Yet how many, how many Christians do we know, and how many of us, some to a greater, some to a lesser degree, are just on that treadmill trying to please God? And getting frustrated. And wondering why there's no real fruit. Why Wondering why there's no real change. The Holy Spirit is not there to nag us. He's not there to nag us. He's not there to condemn us. He's not there to overwhelm us. He's not there primarily, this may surprise some, to make spectacular outward demonstrations of his power, though he may upon occasion. He is not present in our life just to administer to us infusions of divine ecstasy, to make us feel spiritual. The Holy Spirit is there to change our life. That's his work. To transform us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. 
that we need to see and have evidence in our life. And this change, this transformation that he does, guess what? Is a lifelong process. Oh, I was afraid of that. It's a lifelong process. It begins when we, when we are what? Born again. You enter into a brand new life. You are born a second time. And God's Spirit comes and takes residence. And He begins this work of rebuilding, building up, building up, building up. To transform us, to make us more and more like Jesus. That process of transformation begins when we become born again. When we pass from death to life. When we pass from condemnation to acceptance. When we pass from fear to favor. How many know the passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13? You know that passage? One? Two people know it? Don, you know it. Colossians 1, 13, right? Did you want to quote it? It's in that passage. Oh, some are flipping. Wise, wise. Flip to it. It's there Paul says that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His Son whom He loves. God has rescued us. Did we rescue ourselves? No. At some point in our experience, we realized we were desperate, we needed rescuing and saving, and we cried out, God, save me. And God responded in His graciousness and said, all right. And He rescues us from the domain of darkness. What, what kingdom is that? That's the kingdom of sin and the devil, in which every human being lives. And He transfers us to the kingdom of His Son, whom He loves. That beautiful picture. Who rescued us? God did. Did we rescue ourselves? No. It took God to get us. Did He pay a big, big price for us? You think He's going to easily let us slip through His fingers? No. He's got us over here in His kingdom. I want you to picture in your mind's eye two huge fields. Okay. Some of you've been in Roots. You've heard this illustration. Two large fields. We'll call this field the kingdom of darkness. We'll call this the kingdom of His Son, whom He loves. Everybody's born over here. Everybody's, everybody lives in this kingdom. Everybody is a slave to sin, a slave to that kingdom of darkness under the power of the devil, the, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. Everybody. And every so often someone says, This is horrible. I need help. I need out of here. I can't save myself. Somebody, please save me. God, help me. God says, Okay. And he picks you up and he transfers you over here to this kingdom. The kingdom of his son, whom he loves. God does it. Now when you cry out over here, does he say, well, man, I can't see if you, you're not keeping the rules yet. You know, you don't have your act together. You gotta, does he say that to us? No. He just says, if you cry out to me, if you recognize your need and you cry out to me, I'll save you. And he does. And he plants us over here in his, his son's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to understand something over here. You're born again. The process of change and transformation has just begun. You are a babe in Christ. True? And this process is going to continue for the rest of your life. Now, in order for this process to continue and for you to grow and not be stunted in your growth... What do you think you need? Huh? Spiritual food. So you've got to have something to eat, right? Got to have spiritual food. You've got to have spiritual air to breathe. What do you think that would be? Prayer. Very good. You've got to have spiritual brothers and sisters to help you, right? Fellowship. And then you got to have something to begin to do to be productive in the kingdom. Service. Service. Four essential elements. 
See, if I don't have this book and I don't know anything about God, how am I going to improve my concept of Him? How am I going to be able to trust in His graciousness if I don't see page after page after page after page after page? How am I going to come to a place where I say, you know, I'm going to trust Him. I can trust Him. How am I going to be able to do this without spending some time with Him and talking with Him? Whenever in my life I get away from regular reading of the Bible, I get away from prayer, I get away from fellowship, meaningful fellowship, and by that I mean where there's mutual accountability, mutual encouragement, mutual strengthening, and so forth. And all these things are easy to draw back from, aren't they? And they require a great deal of commitment just in terms of getting up early and saying, Oh man, okay, I've got to get on prayer. fall asleep. See, all these things are absolutely essential. But they're not works. We're not doing them to somehow get heavenly brownie points. We do them because we understand they're essential to this brand new life. If I don't eat food, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. If I don't get oxygen at fairly regular intervals... What's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. If I don't have people around me, just as a human being. You've all heard the example, the illustration of babies who were born, that scientists did an experiment, they, they left these babies, and they, no one touched them. And they degenerated, some even died, for lack of just being touched. If that, if that is a, a principle or reality just in this temporal world of which is just a shadow of everything that's heavenly, how much more do we need one another? How much more do we need to be accountable to one another? Learning to be open with one another. Confessing our sins to one another. Praying for one another. And on and on. And, and we all know what happens just on this temporal plane when, when we're not being productive. What happens to our life? What happens to your life? When you're not working, you don't have a job, what happens to you? Pretty soon you find yourself on the street. And unless you get back into productivity, mainstream life, things just begin to unravel. Your mind begins to unravel. We have people coming in this church every single day who are just out of touch with reality. For one reason or another, they've ceased being productive. And their lives have just literally unraveled. You cannot even speak to these people. And so, if we are to grow as Christians, this transformation process, it's absolutely essential that we have these four elements present in our life. For it's through those elements that God's grace becomes real. It's through those elements God's grace becomes effective in our life. Without them, you'll be stunted in your growth. Be stunted in your growth. So I want to commend to you, trust in the Lord. Trust in His grace. Understand being born again, making a decision for Christ, is only the beginning And that if my life is truly to evidence change, if I say, God, change me, and I just stand here, I'm not going to be changed. I'm going to degenerate. That's exactly what the devil wants. Do you know that? The devil wants to immobilize me. He's over here in his kingdom, and he's yelling like crazy at me. Yoo-hoo, (laughs) yoo-hoo. Trying to get my attention. Because over here, if he can get my attention looking back over there, listen to an old familiar voice, if he can discourage me, if he can deceive me, or if he can defeat me, the three D's of the devil, then he's got me. I don't lose my salvation. I'm still saved. I'm still a child of God. I never become an unchild. But he's got me immobilized. I'm totally ineffective. I'm not growing. People look at my life and they say, you're a Christian? (laughs) If that means to be a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. We're not very appealing. 
Beloved, are we not also to be vehicles of God's grace to a fallen world? See, within the context, as we've been talking about the purpose of the church, if the purpose of the church is the building up of the body of Christ so we be more effective fulfilling the tasks of the church, one being evangelism, then would you not say grace is essential? And spiritual growth only comes, spiritual maturity only comes in a lifelong process as we are committed to that process. Because we begin to know God's grace more and more and more and more. And you look into your own life, and if you'll be willing to be intellectually honest with yourself, if you're not growing and maturing, if your Christianity isn't exciting, if it's not like living on the knife edge of faith moment by moment, a thrill a minute. I'm serious. If you can't describe your Christianity that way, then you need to look and say, well, then I have an inadequate view of God. I'm not reaffirming His grace to me. I'm not growing. And I have to admit, I'm not in His Word like I need to be. Nourishing my soul, nourishing my spirit. I'm not in prayer. I'm not talking with God, waiting upon Him. I'm not in strong, wonderful Christian fellowship, enriching my life. And I'm not learning to give my life out. No wonder I'm not growing. No wonder my Christianity is boring. God's grace transforms. We'll slip, we'll fall, we'll make mistakes, we'll blow it. But as we're involved in the process, God continues to grow us. He continues to grow us. He continues to grow us. You guess what? We get better and better and better. That's the idea. Ooh, I'm sorry. Does that sound attractive? God's grace changes us. You don't change yourself. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, be transformed. It's the work of God doing the transforming work as he renews the way we think. How does he renew the way we think? As we can submit ourselves to this process that we just described. And then we'll know God's will. Good, pleasing, and perfect. His will is that we be like him. And we will know it. We'll know what it is like to be like God. Perfect. Loving Him and loving one another. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, we are indeed thankful for Your graciousness thankful for your mercy. Forgive us as we continue to try to live up to the standard. It's only you, as you change us by your grace, that we are enabled to begin to fulfill all the law and the prophets. Lord, I thank you for this reminder in my own life. I find myself often slipping back into performing, pretending, acting, being a hypocrite, wrestling with my own guilt and anxiety. Lord, once again, you call us back to your grace. You said, look over here, look over here. Grace is calling. Thank you, Father. Lord, bless the church. Bless each and every one of us. Help us to know these things, to understand these things. Help us to know you rightly and understand you rightly. Lord, indeed, that we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Keep your heads bowed for just a minute. I'll do... We are his people He gives us music to sing There is a sound now Like the sound of the Lord When his enemies flee There is a quiet
Surrender. 